Well, good morning, everyone. This uh, is supposed to be the good time change where you get the extra hour sleep, but I have small children, so <laughs> it meant nothing, except my morning was longer, which is nice. But it's good to see you all here. I was kind of hoping, I told my Sunday school class that I was hoping that the, uh, some number of people would have forgotten to change their clocks and, the, and so would show up to church early and then have to come to Sunday school, but that, that didn't happen, so... We had our, the, uh, the, the normal faithful ones who are always there uh, week in and week out. And so uh, if you don't come to Sunday school, by the way, you're, you're really missing out. It's an extra hour where we get to be together and study God's Word. And uh, it's, a, it's a neat opportunity. It's an encouraging opportunity. It's only an, you know, an hour earlier. It's not that big a deal. And, uh, but I, I do encourage you for that, that we are studying through... Um, important issues right now. And uh, we're going through the Gospel of John in my class that meets back in here. And then Pastor Woody's dealing with how to answer life issues from Scripture. You have life issues if you're alive. And so you should learn how to deal with those issues. And so Pastor Woody is walking through how to do that during uh, Sunday school over in the fellowship hall. So uh, I would encourage you that direction. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 16. You'll notice that I've thrown you a curveball. I like to do that occasionally and uh, keep you on your toes. But if you'll turn to Acts chapter 16, we're going to take a break this week, sort of, from Romans. We've been working through that this whole calendar year with a couple of breaks in between. And uh, you'll see that the topic of discussion today is right on track with what we've been talking about in Romans, though we will not be in Romans for the majority of our time today. But if you... Have your Bible, turn to chapter 16 of the book of Acts, and I want to read just a few verses here, beginning in verse 25, and I'm going to go down through about 32. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, let's pause for a second, they're in Philippi, they're in jail. And they're uh, singing praises to God. They're singing hymns. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come to you this morning grateful that we can do so. We know that in and of ourselves we don't have the right. We don't have entrance into your presence just by virtue of being human, by virtue of being alive. You are holy. You are all-powerful. You have always existed. You're unchanging. The creator of all things. And so you are majestic and you are high and you are lifted up and we don't deserve entrance into your presence. But we do have entrance into your presence, and we can come and talk to you because of Christ, because of what he has done, that he has given us entrance to come and talk to you and bring our requests. And so we praise you for Jesus. We praise you for what he has done in saving sinners like us. We praise you also for the fact that you have given us your word We get to open it and read 
and hear from you. So we praise you for that. We praise you for the fact that you have saved us to be members of one body. And here we are gathered. We get to encourage each other and we get to strengthen each other and be encouraged. So we praise you for that. Father, we rejoice. And we pray that you would bless our time this morning as we discuss crucial questions that we wish more people asked and that we ourselves need to ask once again this morning. So we pray for your blessing on our time. We pray that you would be at work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can see on your piece of paper there that you got in the bulletin that uh, the title of today's sermon is Five Crucial Questions. The reason we're talking about these things is because this is the, uh, we, we celebrated this past week the anniversary of the, the beginning of the Reformation. We joked last week about all the things that we celebrate on October 31st and, and uh, we, we said it was, uh, you know, Pastor Woody's birthday, which is a big deal to everybody, so we celebrated. And, uh, and then we, we also celebrate Nevada Day because we're Nevadans and we like Nevada, right, Monty? And uh, we, we celebrated uh, also Reformation Day. We didn't want to forget that, that, that uh, 502 years ago, Martin Luther went up to the door of the church in, in uh, Wittenberg and he posted what now we call the ni- his 95 theses, his 95 points for discussion, for debate. And so he was basically posting a bill saying, hey, let's talk about these things. Let's discuss these issues. And he had 95 of them. And that, of course, started the, uh, the, the Reformation in a manner of speaking. He, he didn't have any idea what was going to come of it. He just wanted to discuss these things that were important to him that he saw going on in the church and wanted to talk about them. And that kicked off the Reformation. And, and so we have uh, in Reformation history, we have certain questions that captured people's minds for a century that people thought about that changed the world changed the course of history and we still feel the effects of it today we are a protestant church meaning we are the descendants we follow in the heritage of the protestant reformation and so this is our history this is in a sense where we come from often people think that we you know, just opened the Bible and read the Bible and ended up forming a church like this. It's not really that simple. We come from forebears. We come from people who were before us, who had thoughts and, and problems and challenges, and they wrestled through different issues, and we are the result of. We follow in the footsteps of certain traditions, and and uh, we are Protestants in that regard. And so it's it's fitting for us to talk about the Reformation. It's fitting for us to take a week out of our uh, regularly scheduled preaching uh, program and talk about these important questions, five crucial questions that we're going to work our way through. And in many ways, as we talk about these questions, you can see that actually they are similar to the kinds of questions that were raised when that earthquake happened in Philippi. And that jailer came rushing in and he was, he, he woke up and he saw the doors were open. And of course, if you were in jail and the doors suddenly burst open and no one was looking, what would you do? Probably you would head for the hills, right? And, uh, and so he woke up and he thought, uh oh, I'm in real trouble. I've been given care. I've been given responsibility for these prisoners and, and they've all escaped. So he draws a sword. He's going to kill himself. And of course, Paul and Silas stop him from doing that, and they, and we're all here. We're all, you know, something else is going on, and, and so we begin to see these big questions that he asks and that the, uh, apostle answers. And so we want to look at some of those today. We want to discuss the five big questions that they, uh, were taken with during the time of the Reformation. And the first big question, is the same question that the jailer asks. What must I do to be saved? And that was the first big question of the Reformation. What must I do to be saved? In other words, how can a person be justified before God? 
And so what I want to do as we're working through each of these five questions is we're going to talk about a little bit of what that question means. We're going to talk about what the context was then and what the context is nowadays for us. Because maybe this is just ancient history and we're just rehearsing things that they talked about long ago and they got it all wrapped up and we don't need to think about those things anymore. And so we're going to talk about what the situation really is nowadays. But of course, when asked the question, what must I do to be saved? The response of the reformers was that salvation is sola fide. It's by faith alone. You see, the context in which they asked that question during the medieval period, in order for a person to be saved, that person had to be baptized. And that baptism placed them in a state of grace before God. And then, of course, as they grew, because they were baptized as an infant, as they grew, they would have sinned and sinned grievously. And so what do they do? What's the response? Well, you have to do penance. You have to make up for those sins. You have to get back to that state of grace. He had to work the plan of the sacraments and if he was going to have any hope for salvation. And so the answer to the question during that time period, how is a person saved, was a little more complex than the answer the Reformers gave. You see, the, the church at the time did see that grace was essential for salvation. Grace was essential for salvation, but they saw grace as kind of a substance, something that's poured into your life, poured into the heart of the individual. And when, when grace was poured into the heart of an individual, it was his responsibility to fan it into flame, to cooperate with it, cooperate with that grace of God. And, and once he fanned it into flame, once he cooperated with it, it would result in life change. And once there had been adequate life change, that person could be said to have been justified before God. He now had a right standing before God. And so you see, it was a process. It was something that they did. It, was, it involved baptism. It involved penance. It involved a fanning into flame, cooperating with the grace that God had given you. What was the answer that Paul and Silas gave when the jailer asked them, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus. That was his answer. His answer was sola fide. By faith alone. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And the answer given by the reformers was the same. They understood that faith is how a person was saved. And faith as they saw it, as they understood it, was the passive receptance of a gift, a passive receiving of a gift. And even, according to the Reformers, even that faith itself was a gift. And they insisted that in addition to your faith, you can do absolutely nothing to be saved. Keep your finger there in Acts chapter 16 and turn with me to Romans chapter 4, we talked about this, and so I'm not going to belabor the point, but I want to call to attention what Paul is talking about, the same Paul who answered that question to the Philippian jailer here in Romans chapter 4. Talking about justification, he says in verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then he goes to quote David talking on the same topic. This is the answer the reformers gave. It is by faith and faith alone. And if the person is working, then what they receive is not called a gift. It is not counted to him. It is not credited to him. It's paid to him. And it was said of Abraham, he believed God 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that's, that's the discussion during the Reformation era. That was, that was what they were dealing with when they said that salvation is by faith alone. Well, what about nowadays? Well, of course, we still have around us works-based religions. You don't have to look too far. You can see a message that says, yeah, the grace of God is important as long as you do these things as well, then it all works together and you can have salvation. So we, we still have works-based religions in our day, but you don't even have to go to a works-based religion. Just share the gospel with someone and tell them that they can be made right with God by faith. And what's their response? Whether they say the words or only think them, that is too good to be true. Surely I have to do something. Surely I have to measure up in some way. And actually, some within the church would have a similar response. They would see that yes, salvation, justification by faith is just too easy. There's got to be more that you add to it. Surely that can't be all there is. Surely there's got to be something that I do. Well, that's the same idea that was uh, espoused by 19th century revivalist Charles Finney. This is what he said about justification by faith. This is a quote from him. Quote, The doctrine of an imputed righteousness is another gospel. For sinners to be forensically pronounced just is impossible and absurd. Folks, this is one of the heroes of the modern American church saying that justification cannot be by faith alone. That is absurd. He called it another gospel. And so is this question of what must I do to be saved still relevant for today? Of course it is. And there are people within the church, people called Christians who answer this the way Finney did. The way the medieval church answered it. So the question of what a man must do to be saved is still obviously a very relevant one. It's still at issue today. As is the second question. What must I trust? What must I trust? If salvation is by faith alone, in what am I having faith? What am I to trust? In other words, how is our salvation accomplished? And the answer the reformers gave was solus Christus, or some say solo Christo. I have zero Latin, so I've already gone beyond what I know. I don't know how to spell it. <laughs> I'm sure it has something to do with the case system or whatever, but solus Christus was their answer. What must I trust? Christ alone. How was our salvation accomplished? By Christ alone. So what was the context then? Well, one essentially had to trust the plan and had to work the plan. He had to trust that his baptism was effective and then the other sacraments would be effectual in giving forgiveness and giving merit and giving grace. And he had to trust the authority of the priest who was administering these things to dispense forgiveness and to serve as his mediator. So in the Middle Ages, what was the, or in, in, in the medieval period, what was the answer that was given? There's a lot of things you had to trust. A lot of things. From the priest to the sacraments. What was the answer Paul and Silas gave back in Acts chapter 16? What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Their response was the same as what would later be by the reformers. They rang that same bell that what do we trust in? Well, we trust in Christ. Salvation isn't dispensed through any other means than Christ himself. There is no other mediator than Christ himself. There is no other person. There is no other structure. There is no other thing that we are trusting in in order to have salvation, in order to have salvation dispensed to us. It doesn't come from Rome. It doesn't come from sacraments. It doesn't come from a priest. It doesn't come by any other means except by Christ alone. And so the answer they gave was that salvation is solus Christus. It's accomplished by Christ alone. What about nowadays? What about nowadays? 
Well, listen to, to a couple of statistics. These will not encourage you. According to one sociological study, 35% of evangelical seminary students, 35% of evangelical seminary students deny that faith in Christ is absolutely necessary. That's the next generation of preachers in the evangelical church. Deny that faith in Christ is absolutely necessary. According to George Barna, that percentage is the same for conservative evangelical Protestants in America, 35% of whom agreed with this statement. God will save all good people when they die, regardless of whether they've trusted in Christ. One in three conservative evangelical Protestants. That's today's church and tomorrow's preachers, a third of whom think, Christ isn't really necessary. One well-known evangelical theologian named Clark Pennock has argued that the Bible, quote, the Bible does not teach that one must confess the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. The issue God cares about is the direction of the heart, not the content of their theology. There's an evangelical theologian. For these people, the answer that Paul and Silas should have given to the Philippian jailer when he said, what must I do to be saved? Rather than saying, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, they, they should have said, make sure that you're a good part person and have a good heart. That's the message. So is this question relevant for today? A hundred percent. And so we will continue to discuss it. We will continue to focus on it. Fortunately, Paul doesn't let us get very far from that in the book of Romans. So this is a question during the Reformation period that's very much a question nowadays. What must I trust? But thirdly, how do we answer such questions? How do we come to our answers on that? In other words, what must I obey? And the answer the Reformers gave was sola scriptura. Scripture alone gives us the reliable answer to those questions. Scripture alone is the standard for Christian faith and practice. Now the context, there were a couple of different contexts uh, during the period of the Reformation where this topic was of particular interest. One was the answer that, that was given by Rome, which said, yes, the Bible is infallible, but it's difficult to understand, and so God has given a second authority, also an infallible authority, alongside it to interpret it for you. That's the church. And so thus you have at least two standards of authority for your life. When, when asking the question, what's my standard, uh, what's my authority for life and practice, where do I get my answers? Rome's answer was, well, it's in the Bible, but, but you need us to interpret that for you. So where does the answer really come from? It really comes from the church. The church becomes the authority. And, of course, the reformers stood against that. But that, that was only one perspective. That was only the Roman perspective. You also had another uh, difficult answer, uh, an answer that they ended up battling against that was given by some of the, or many of the Anabaptist reformers, what's, what's sometimes called the Radical Reformation, uh, that's, that's uh, different, similar to, but different from uh, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and, and those. The Radical Reformation, the answer that they gave was that we should listen to the inner voice of the Spirit. As the Spirit speaks to us, and by the way, particularly their leader of whatever their particular group was, he got, the voice of God really speaks to that guy. So, so he has some extra authority. But that inner voice of the Spirit is authoritative alongside the Bible. And it's actually easier to understand. And in, in many ways, it's more authoritative than the external Word of God given to us in the Bible. And so you see the Reformers, they had it coming from both sides. One group said, no, it's the church that's the authority that can pass on, that can convey, communicate the truth of Scripture to you, and they're the only authorities to do so. And the other said, no, every man can hear for himself from the Spirit, and that internal voice of the Spirit is equally authoritative alongside the Word of God. 
And that's what they dealt with. And so for the reformers, the answer was very different. In matters of faith and practice, the answer for the reformers was sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the one that's authoritative. Not the voice of the church, however important that may be. Not the, not the inner speaking of the Spirit. The Word of God has been given to us, and Scripture alone is what is authoritative to us. Christians are compelled by no other authority than the Bible alone. It's the only answer for us. It's the only source that gives us an infallible answer, a sufficient rule for deciding issues of faith and practice. The church is not infallible. It's not the only authoritative interpreter of God's Word. And on the other hand, neither is the internal Word of the Spirit authoritative in our lives. God has given us a Bible. And it is the sole, infallible, and sufficient rule for faith and practice. By the way, the the Word of God has been questioned from the very beginning of time. You only have to turn a couple of pages in your Bible before you find the question being asked by the serpent. Did, did God really say? Calling God's Word into question. And so nothing has changed. Nothing has changed in that time. The Word of God is still called into question. And so what about nowadays? How, how do we think about this question nowadays? Well, you have some on the one camp who uh, view the Bible as too difficult too obscure for them to understand, and so they look to other people. They look to the church, or they look to certain authorities, or, or radio preachers, or TV preachers, or some other source as their authority, because they, they've got a Bible, but they don't, they don't really read it. They don't really know it, and they don't really understand it, so they're just going to listen to some other authority. They're, they're really just wanting a breakdown of what the Bible means. They, they want to know how it's relevant for their lives. They want to know how it can make their life better. They don't really care to know it. They don't really care to open it and live in it. They just want the brief. But on the other hand, you've also, you don't have to look too far to find people and even churches who believe that the, the internal voice of what is supposed to be the Spirit should actually take priority over the Spirit-inspired words of Scripture. That there are, there are churches that would actually say, you know, don't, don't, don't spend too much time worrying about your Bible. Just listen to what God is saying to your heart. Close your Bible. Close the Word of God that has been given to you, inspired by Him. And instead, listen to what is supposed to be the voice of the Spirit in your heart. A simple question, I think, should serve to drive this home. In your own experience, do you think Christians nowadays tend to be more governed by what they read in Scripture or more governed by what they just know in their heart to be true? That's a question for, for you to ask and answer for yourself. But from my experience, Christians rely far, far more upon what they feel to be true than upon what they read in Scripture. The answer the reformers gave, what's our, our rule and authority? Scripture alone is our rule and authority. So you can see this same question is being asked and answered various ways nowadays. It brings us to the fourth question. What must I earn? What must I earn? There was a popular medieval phrase that went like this. I want you to remember this because it's going to come back in just a moment. God will not deny His grace to those who do what they can. God will not deny His grace to those who do what they can, taught the medieval church. You see, the majority view of the church was that grace was a necessary part of the salvation process. From the beginning to, to the end, grace was required. It was, it was essential. But it was not sufficient. It had to be cooperated with. I had to add my part. God gave His grace as Him doing His part, and me for my side, what am I supposed to do? What am I to earn? Well, I'm, I'm to follow certain conditions, and the necessary condition 
was penance and, and like behavior. God does his part by showing grace. You do your, your part by measuring up in some way, by something that you have to do. For the medieval church, often that had something to do with penance and things like that. And that was, that was the only necessary condition to make grace yours. And of course, at first blush, that may sound like it's not too far off the mark. And actually, there may be some in this room who, who agree with that statement. That God, by His grace, accomplishes the building, except for the final piece of making it your own, of applying it to you. He had done all the work, but He had not applied it to you. That part was up to you. That was the typical Roman Catholic view of the day. If sinners acted in a certain way, God would respond to them accordingly. He would, he, would, he would come the rest of the way by infusing grace into them, where grace is poured into their lives like a substance and they fan it into flame, they make it into something. It grows into obedience to God. It's like a, grace is like a medicine that frees a person to behave as he should. The uh, Roman Catholic priest Erasmus of Rotterdam, he spoke of man having, quote, a power... Uh, of the human will by which a man can apply himself to the things which lead to eternal salvation or turn away from them. In other words, God makes the overtures. Man turns by his will to respond, resulting in salvation, or turns by his will to reject, resulting in damnation. See, in that context, man had the decisive role by the use of his free will. This was the context in which the reformers were responding. This was the, the great debate that happened between Erasmus and Luther on the topic of the free will and its role, where it played in this. A Roman argued that man was saved by his cooperating with the grace that had been fused, infused into him. The reformers insisted that man is saved, quote, solely by the merits of Christ as his righteousness is imputed to our account. Keep your finger in Acts chapter 16 and go over to Colossians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. This is Paul's perspective on that debate. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's very similar to what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll pick up in Ephesians chapter 2, where he continues on the same topic, verses 8 through 10, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's what the Reformers were dealing with in this topic of Salvation by grace. What must I earn? The reformer said it's sola gratia. It is all of faith. All of grace. So what's the discussion nowadays? How do we, is, is this a topic of discussion now? Well, I, I asked you to keep in mind what that original phrase was from the, from the medieval period. God helps those, excuse me, God will not deny His grace to those who do what they can. I already read the modern translation. God helps those who help themselves. There was a poll done of evangelicals, and half of them thought that was a Bible quote. 84% of those who were polled said, well, even if it's not a Bible quote, it's biblical. It's consistent with biblical doctrine to say that God helps those who help themselves. In other words, God, for His part, gives grace, but we have to do our part. We have to hold our end of the deal. We must cooperate with grace. 
in order for it to be effectual. You see, the same debate that raged so hotly during this period of time still rages. The same discussion. And so as we celebrate the Reformation, as we call it to mind, we call this topic to mind as well, this question of what what must I earn? What's my end of the deal? And my prayer is that we will hear the answer the Reformers gave, which is, Salvation is all of grace. Not only is grace required, it is sufficient to accomplish the salvation of sinners. It's not just God upholding His end of the deal. It is God saving sinners. And so we can say that salvation is sola gratia. Brings us to our last question. What's the point? What is the point? Their answer was soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone. All of this is accomplished for the glory of God alone. You see, the, the medieval church said that every element that we've looked at today, faith and Christ and Scripture and grace, they believed in all of those things. They even believed that each of those elements was essential. They taught faith and Christ and grace. They valued Scripture, but none of these was adequate and deficient in and of itself. The Reformation brought us back to the truth that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone. And only when we have each of those alones in place, only then can we truly say that salvation is soli deo gloria. For the glory of God alone. You see, if, if there's something added to it, if salvation is by faith plus something else, then that something else gets a portion of the credit. If there's some other mediator alongside Christ, then that mediator gets a portion of the credit. It is not solely Deo Gloria. If salvation is by grace plus anything else that I do, including my response, then I share in that glory. And I can't truthfully say that salvation is solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone, because I did, I did my part. It was a tiny, tiny part, but I did my part. This is the teaching, this is the doctrine of the Reformation. This is one thing that they agreed upon and disagreed very strongly with the medieval Roman Catholic Church. One modern scholar commenting on this said that soli deo gloria is a reminder that by twisting the gospel or by adding works to the gospel, a person is actually missing the glory that comes through a gospel of grace and faith through Jesus and described by scripture. So what about now? If that was a discussion then, what about now and what about us? Well, of course, we could we could debate some of these points and and many would want to, but but we're here today and we have the Lord's table in front of us. Where we call to mind and we celebrate what Christ has done for us. And together we say that salvation is solely Deo Gloria. And we partake in this meal together. And we call to mind what the symbols represent. We call to mind the, the blood of Christ shed for us as He was accomplishing salvation. Not merely offering it. We, we call to mind the body that He gave up, that He offered, that was the sacrifice given as we celebrate with the bread, as He accomplished salvation. Jesus is the one who did it in His life and death and resurrection. He accomplished it. And so salvation is solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so if I could have the men who are going to Help us serve communion. Come forward. We'll celebrate together. As I said, this is a commemoration of what Christ has done. 
This is us calling it to mind. This is us benefiting from it. This is us celebrating together, encouraging one another about it. And so our focus is not on a cup. It's not on a piece of bread. But through those, our focus is on Christ and on what he's done. First, we come to the bread. Gentlemen, if you would take up the bread, please. This portion of our service is really for Christians. It's for those who believe in him, for those, those who know him and know God through him. And so as the elements are passed around, if, if you're not a believer, just let them pass. And then come talk to one of us. Come ask questions. Come, come find out more. But if, if this is not you, if you don't know Christ, just let them pass. It's not a shameful thing or anything like that. This is something that we believers celebrate together. And this is what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Let's pray together. Father, we call to mind right now the body of Christ broken for us. The veil torn that that barred us from your presence because, because of our sinfulness, our fallenness. Jesus gave his own body as that veil to be torn to open up the presence of God to us. And so, even as these elements are being passed, we focus on you. We confess our sins and ask for forgiveness and find that forgiveness in Christ. And we rejoice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you would take up the cup, please. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate that new covenant. We celebrate what Christ has done in giving his life that we might have forgiveness of sins and right standing before you. Father, we rejoice in Christ and we thank you for what he's done and we call to mind his sacrifice for us as that grain of wheat falling to the ground and dying and thus bearing life and that is us so we thank you and we celebrate and we call to mind the blood of Christ shed on our behalf in Jesus name amen Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. And when I'm done praying, there will be some folks up here who would love to pray for you. If you have questions, or you have an issue you need to pray about or praise the Lord uh, for, then uh, come on up and talk to them. And also, this is the Sunday of the month where we take a special benevolence offering. And so there's a box in the back of the room. There's also a plate in the foyer that you can uh, contribute there. That's to, to help out folks who uh, are in financial need, some sort of physical need. And so you can contribute to that now as well. Let's pray. Father, we give you glory, knowing that in and of ourselves we had nothing that would commend us to you, that we, that we were not good people who had uh, things that, uh, that, would, that were desirable to you and that would convince you uh, to save us or anything like that. I recognize my fallenness in my own heart, and I rejoice in the salvation that is mine in Christ. And I know that there is no other way that I could have been saved. Had you not shown me mercy, had you not shown me grace, I would still be in that spot. And so I thank you and I praise you. And Father, as we wrestled with some questions today, briefly, quickly, I pray that these questions would be on our minds anyway. That we would be shaken out of our slumber like that Philippian jailer and that we would ask the, the, the questions that are the most important and not be satisfied to, uh, to receive weak answers or no answer. So, Father, I pray that you would bless us. Bless us as we go forth. May we think about these things and open your word and read it, rejoicing that we have your word in our hands. May we rejoice that we have salvation in Christ and go forth knowing forgiveness, knowing peace with you because of what Christ has done. And may we be the bearers of that message to people around us who need to hear the gospel, who are still in that place we were once, and that you would use that message and draw many to yourself. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this salvation that is ours in Christ alone. And we pray in his name. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen and amen. God bless you and you're dismissed.